To ascend the throne, Solomon had to pronounce the sacred scripture. To be worthy of rulership, he had to commit to judge all equally. And the Midrash thereby reminds us of what Maimonides writes about the biblical king, that his heart is meant to include all of Israel. That, in other words, is ultimately what makes the king royal. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 291, The Throne of Solomon. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. As an aficionado of the history of royalty, I have had the opportunity to visit several throne rooms. And the most beautiful room I have ever seen is the House of Lords in the Palace of Westminster, gilded with gold, and at its epicenter, the royal throne of the British monarch where the sovereign sits in the annual opening of Parliament and informs those assembled what laws will be put forward by the government that has been formed. It is a lovely throne in an exquisite room. The British Parliament website informs us that, quote, the sovereign's throne is one of the most important items of furniture in the Palace of Westminster. The elaborately carved woodwork is gilded, inset with rock crystals and upholstered in sumptuous red velvet and intricate embroidery. John Webb of Bond Street constructed the throne, to A.W.N. Pugin's design in 1847. Pugin was most likely influenced in his design of this throne by St. Edward's chair, popularly known as the Coronation Chair, which sits in Westminster Abbey and was first used by Edward II in 1308. The Coronation Chair is the earliest surviving example of an English throne, and Pugin could not have failed to have been inspired by it. End quote. Thus, the chair in the House of Lords embodies, in a certain sense, the United Kingdom itself. Indeed, upon it one will see symbols of four realms, England, Scotland, North Ireland, and Wales. But as we have mentioned in earlier talks, right next door to the House of Lords is another room, also extraordinary. It is known as the Moses Room because it is dominated by a massive painting created by the British artist John Rogers Herbert, which depicts Moses descending Sinai bringing with him the Luchot, the two tablets of the law. This room is utilized, among other purposes, to robe the new members of the House of Lords before they enter the main chamber for their swearing in. Thus, Rabbi Emanuel Jacobowitz, the first rabbi to become a peer of the House of Lords, describes how the Moses Room enhanced his experience. Quote, A few years ago, I was greeted as the first rabbi ever to be elevated to the House of Lords. I was robed in the Moses Room, so named because it is dominated by an imposing portrait of Moses, our first rabbi. He was already in the House of Lords, holding the tablet of the law no doubt, as a model for the laws enacted in the Mother of Parliaments. There I was, but a modest second, end quote. It is therefore no coincidence that when Rabbi Sachs became the second rabbi to join the House of Lords, he also made reference to the Moses Room, and he said in his inaugural speech, quote, My lords, when I entered this chamber for the first time, I did so from the Moses Room, and I thank my lordships for the lengths they went to make a rabbi feel at home. Today I feel the other side of that occasion. For it was Moses at the burning bush who felt so overwhelmed by emotion that he told God he could not speak. He was not a man of words. Mind you, that did not stop him speaking a great deal thereafter. In fact, on one occasion when pleading with God to forgive the people for making the golden calf, he spoke for 40 days and 40 nights. However, by Sachs continued, on another occasion when asking God to heal his sister Miriam, he limited himself to a mere five words. I am told by your lordship, Sir by Sachs further said that when making a maiden speech, it's better to err on the side of the latter than the former, and that I will try to do, end quote. Thus, upon entering this golden room that is the House of Lords containing the throne of the British Sovereign, the rabbi, 
referenced another room next door, hinting, perhaps, that in his own approach to government, he would be guided and inspired by the legacy and teachings of Moses. The juxtaposition of the nearness of the Moses room to the throne of the House of Lords inspires reflection on what a throne from a biblical perspective ought to be. And this, in turn, brings us to a scriptural description of Solomon's throne, as well as the Midrashic writings about it, which tell us a great deal for Judaism as to what the nature of royalty is all about. As in the book of Kings, we are told in Chronicles that from the very beginning, Solomon beseeched the Almighty for wisdom as he sought to lead and judge his subjects. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 7. And that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, and hast made me reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established, for thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this thy people that is so great? And God said to Solomon, Because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet hast asked long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had that have been before thee. Neither shall there any after thee have the like. Then Solomon came from his journey to the high place that was at Givon to Jerusalem, from before the tabernacle of the congregation and reigned over Israel. In chapter 9, we are informed how Solomon's wisdom made him famous far beyond his realm, inspiring the queen of Sheba to come from afar and see for herself. Verse 5, And she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in mine own land of thine acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not their words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the one half of the greatness of thy wisdom was not told me, for thou exceedest the fame that I heard. Happy are thy men and happy are these servants which stand continually before thee and hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on his throne, to be king for the Lord thy God, because thy God loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore he made thee king over them to do judgment and justice. Then, almost immediately after this passage, lauding the wisdom of Solomon, we are informed of the splendor of the throne on which Solomon sat from which he dispensed wisdom and judgment to his people. Verse 17. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. And there were six steps to the throne, with a footstool of gold which were fastened to the throne, and stays on each side of the sitting place, and two lions standing by the stays. And twelve lions stood there on the one side and on the other side upon the six steps. There was not the like made in any kingdom. Coming immediately after the previous passage, it is not surprising that the Midrash further describes the makeup and meaning of this throne and how it embodied Solomon's wisdom. The Midrash tells us that the throne was a wondrous, miraculous invention, featuring animals that moved and assisted the monarch as he ascended to sit upon it. We need not take the Midrashic descriptions literally in order to understand the significance of the symbolism being offered here. Let me cite several selected sentences from the Midrash, and this is my own translation from the Hebrew. How did Solomon make the throne? Through the wisdom that God gave him, and it was studded with beautiful stones and gems, the likes of which no other king or ruler could fashion. There were six steps to the throne, and from those steps he would ascend to the throne, and there were twelve lines upon it, on every step two lions. How was this so? When King Solomon sought to ascend on the first step, the lions upon it would extend their paws above, and there was writing inscribed on their paws, and he would not go up to the second step until he would read the verses inscribed upon them. And what was one of them? When the king turned his face to the right, he would see the writing that was on the paw of the right lion. 
And what was the writing on it? Thou shalt not show favoritism in judgment. And then he would turn his face to the left, and there was written upon it, Thou shalt not take bribery. And so it was with all the lions that was written upon it, related matters of justice. So the Midrash tells us, the lions moved when one read the verses from the Bible about justice written upon their paws. The Midrash then goes on to describe how the golden lions were joined by other miraculous creatures, including a golden dove, or as the Midrash puts it, describing what would occur when Solomon finally ascended and sat down. And a gold dove would stand between the pillars and would open the ark and would take a Torah scroll and place it between his knees to fulfill that which is written, and it shall be with him and he shall study it all the days of his life. The symbolism of this Midrash is manifestly clear and sublime. To ascend the throne, Solomon had to pronounce the sacred scripture. To be worthy of rulership, he had to commit to judge all equally. And the Midrash thereby reminds us of what Maimonides writes about the biblical king, that his heart is meant to include all of Israel. That, in other words, is ultimately what makes the king royal. As we have quoted previously from Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, Malchut, or kingship, quote, in general historical terms, precipitates the separation of the king from his people, his existential exclusiveness. However, in Judaism, Malchut means integration of the individual in the community and existential all-inclusiveness and openness. The king opens himself up to everyone and embraces the entire nation without excluding anybody. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, I confess I do enjoy looking at thrones and visiting palaces, rooms that once only the elite few could enter. But in the end, the Midrash reminds us that it is the dispensing of wisdom to all the people that makes a king truly glorious. Or to put it differently, there is more splendor in the tablets of the Torah that we could see Moses bearing in the Moses room than all the gilded gold in the room that is the house of lords itself. Rabbi Sachs once quipped that, quote, People sometimes ask me, which do I prefer, the house of the lords or the house of the Lord? I say, if given a choice, always choose the house of the Lord, because in the house of the Lord, only the rabbi gives a sermon, and in the house of lords, everyone gives a sermon, end quote. Well, I thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to this Bible 365 sermon today. And though I have seen the throne in the house of lords, I have yet to see the throne of Solomon. But if we imagine the Midrashic description in our mind, we may well understand, from the perspective of Judaism, what royalty is truly all about. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.